1: Pandemic. Book three of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Pandemic is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com pandemic. Chapter four. The responsible party. Cooper Cooper wasn't sick, at least not physically. He'd eaten human flesh. What could be sicker than that? Do what you have to so you can stay alive, whatever it takes. He sat cross-legged on a pile of clothes, probably gathered from one of the hotel rooms on the floors above. The fire warmed his face and chest. He held his gun in both hands. The barrel rested on his calves. The monster formerly known as Jeff sat next to him. It could almost have been a campfire scene, maybe a hunting trip to the Upper Peninsula, the two of them drinking Labatt, staring at the stars and talking about women. Cooper wished the transformation had been more severe, that Jeff's face didn't look like Jeff, but the eyes, the nose, no mistaking his lifelong friend. Jeff wanted to know if Cooper was ill. Cooper was trying to decide if he could put the barrel of his pistol to Jeff's ear and pull the trigger. Shoot him. Shoot him. But if you miss or don't kill him. He'll kill you. He'll eat you. Cooper. Yeah, Jeff, Cooper said. I'm sick. Other than Jeff, the cannibals were out of commission. They were sick. Obviously hurting pretty bad. Even the tall man was down for the count. Jeff reached a hand behind Cooper. Cooper froze. He tried to lift the gun, but he couldn't move a muscle. Please, God, make this stop. Make him go away. Make him go away. I want to live. I want to live. I... Something touched his head. Something hard. Something pointy. The bone blade. Jeff was going to carve him up. Rip him to shreds. Get up and run and fight. Shoot him, shoot him. No, 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 you'll miss. You can't win. Play dead, please. God, please don't let him kill me, please. Cooper started to tremble. The thing touched his head again, only it wasn't the bone blade at all. It was Jeff's fingers, brushing from Cooper's temple to the top of his head. He felt the same thing a third time and a fourth. He's petting me. He thinks I'm sick and he's petting my head. Everyone, Hersch, will go find help. The fingers stroked Cooper's hair one last time. Then Jeff stood. He lumbered to the front of the hotel lobby. He walked out the ruined rotating door and vanished into the night. Cooper slowly stood. He scanned the ravaged, smoky lobby to see if any of the killers were looking at him. They weren't. They were too busy dying. The tall man's eyes leaked yellow fluid, not all that different in color and consistency from the phlegm coating his nose and mouth. He was still coughing, still sneezing, but was too weak to wipe the goo away. Cooper walked closer. The man's roomy eyes opened and closed the stringers of yellow mucus that ran between his eyelids bouncing in time. His throat made a wet sound. This was the man who ate Sophia. You ate her too. You ate her too. I only had one serving, you fuck! Cooper took a step back. He just yelled at himself. You are so fucking crazy. You're going off the deep end, man. Get control. Shut up! Shut up! He scrunched his eyes tight. He rubbed the pistol barrel against his right temple. You've got the gun. Use it. Use it. Use it on the tall man? No need. The tall man didn't have much time left. None of these assholes did. Or maybe it was better if Cooper used it on himself. He shook his head. Shook it hard. No, he couldn't think like that. He could make it out alive. He could... But if he couldn't, if people like the tall man got him, if they were going to shove a stop sign up his ass and out his mouth, roast him over a fire, was eating a bullet better than just being eaten? The tall man coughed again. Phlegm came up, but this time so did blood. A thick, dark red glob clung to his chin. He's coughing blood. Shava was coughing blood. Cooper heard yelling from the street. He held the gun against his thigh as he slowly walked to a broken window. He crouched, peeking just over the sill's jagged glass. Outside he saw two women sprinting for their lives. Behind them, seven or eight screaming people carrying knives, hatchets, one carrying a shotgun by the barrel as if it were a club. Running alongside the hunters were two hulking pale yellow creatures with tiny faces and rippling muscles. Were either of them Jeff? No, they weren't. Cooper would have recognized his friend, monstrous or not. He couldn't help those two women. He hadn't saved Sophia, so he sure as fuck wasn't going to get himself killed over a pair of strangers. He watched the pursuers, the ones who still looked like normal people. Why weren't they sick like the tall man and his crew? Why weren't they sick like Shavo? Wind blew through the ruined window scattering snow in Cooper's face. He walked back to the fire. No one had tended it for a while, nor tended to Sophia. Curls of orange heat wavered through the bed of coals, the flickering light playing off her blackened, burned, half-eaten corpse. Cooper looked away. He had to get out of there, but he wasn't setting foot on those streets. No fucking way. Someone had to rescue him. Someone with lots of guns. But who... Were news stations telling people how to get help? He hadn't seen a working TV since he and Sophia fled the Trump Tower. If he still had his cell phone, he could have tried reaching cops in other cities, maybe the Army or the National Guard. Then it hit him. He didn't have a phone, but his group leader did. He walked back to the tall man. Your phone, Cooper said. Give it to me. The tall man stared up. His eyes narrowed in confusion. He was trying to focus, trying to see. Cooper held out his hand. Your phone! The tall man blinked a few times. His eyes seemed to clear. He nodded. With great effort, he reached his right hand into his pants pocket and pulled out a flip phone. He flipped it open with his right thumb. His left hand reached up to wrap around the top. He twisted his hands, and the phone cracked sickeningly, breaking into two pieces. The tall man coughed, then laughed weakly. (laughs) I know now. I know you're not a friend. Cooper wanted to stomp his face in. He wouldn't, though, at least not yet. The tall man was in great pain, and Cooper wanted him to suffer. Cooper looked up at the ceiling. Most of the lights were out, broken by random psychos throwing random things for random reasons. But two of them shone bright. The electricity. It was still on. Maybe he could find a hotel phone. If the power was on, maybe landlines still worked. He looked at the registration desk, or what was left of it. The remains of three computers lay scattered on the broken wood. Computers. If he could get on the Internet, he could probably find out what was happening. He could find help. There had to be more computers around somewhere. On the wall behind the registration desk, he saw a door. A manager's office? He walked to the door. He tried the handle. Locked. Maybe the psychos hadn't been in there. Cooper took another look around the lobby to make sure no one had gotten up, that no one was watching him. No one was. He set off to find something heavy. Chapter 5 Waiting Margaret Montoya sat on the bunk of her mission module. She had the lights off. The others thought she was sleeping, so they left her alone. She'd handled that video conference all wrong. She'd confronted the president with the harsh realities of life, had been unable to ignore Blackman's superstitious, primitive tripe. Margaret should have pandered from the get-go, told Blackman what the woman wanted to hear, anything to get an invitation to the White House. Margaret's rage had gotten the better of her, made her lose focus. She could have gotten close enough to murder the president of the United States. Yes, Margaret would be killed in the process, But the act would further cripple America's ability to respond, a missed opportunity. Hopefully another of her kind, another leader, would figure out a way to get next to the President. America would fall, then the world.
0: That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dallowitz, and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: If the opportunity came again, Margaret would seize it. For now, she worked on understanding God's plan understanding the role of each caste. The large yellowish bipeds, that's what came out of the cocoons. The complete restructuring of an adult human body, creating a caste made to terrify, to destroy, to kill. A soldier joining the ranks of the hatchlings, puffballs, kissy faces and leaders. But without the orbital, how would all these strains find each other? How could they work together? The answer could be some kind of quorum sensing, the method hive insects, bacteria, and other non-intelligent life forms use to make what appeared to be conscious, intelligent choices. A bee colony deciding when to split into two smaller colonies and where to build the new nests. Ants deciding how to best react to a threat. Bacteria deciding to turn genes on or off based on population density. Chemical and physical cues led many individual organisms to act as a larger whole. The converted clearly had a way of detecting one another and quickly forming cohesive units. Maybe the crawlers provided a capacity to identify friend from foe. The best scientists in the world still hadn't figured out how the orbital had communicated in real time to hundreds of infected individuals. That ability defied physics, yet she had seen it with her own eyes. If the orbital could do that, it was reasonable it could also make a spidey sense that let the infected know when they were near their kind. Scent. Could the explanation be that simple? A chemical on the host's breath or exuded through his skin. Crawlers modified the host's brain. Perhaps they adjusted the olfactory response, letting the converted identify one another by smell alone. Maybe that was how Candace Walker had survived as long as she did. If this scent was a by-product of the cellulose, the converted on the Los Angeles might have thought she was one of them, giving her more time to react, to plan. Walker. Now that Margaret understood a true god existed and guided its followers, she could only think of Walker in terms of another kind of religious figure. Candace Walker had been the Antichrist. The other patients from the hack trial could also be antichrists, the bringers of a plague that would wipe out Margaret's kind. That was humanity's only hope, because without the hydras, it was already over. The math didn't lie. She'd seen the numbers. Millions of infected, millions of converted. The exponential shift was already underway. In two weeks, three at the most, humans would be reduced to isolated groups, Groups that couldn't trust one another, because any one of them might be the enemy. In four weeks, humans would be outnumbered. In five weeks, maybe six, the only human survivors would be individuals hiding in the woods and mountains, living off the land. And to think she'd been upset that she'd lost the Hydra samples when evacuating the Karl Brashear. Yes, God did work in mysterious ways. She was more than willing to sacrifice herself if it sped up the change, if it brought the converted to power. But if she was still alive when that change happened, then she could start taking control. She would gather the most brilliant of her kind, the engineers, the physicists, the astronomers, organize them, figure out how to rebuild industry, how to create a civilization with one unified goal, building more orbitals, and sending them out into the galaxy. Chapter Six, The Emperor. Steve Stanton's pencil was a blur as he finished writing his message. He handed the piece of paper to General Brownstone. Get that to the people, she saluted. Right away, Emperor. Dana Brownstone was a retired four-star general who had once run the US Army Material Command. She was smart, a leader just like him. Steve had big plans for her. She had already organized distribution of cell phones and weapons, created a detailed message flow structure that improved Steve's ability to control over 200,000 converted spread throughout the greater Chicago area. Brownstone handed the paper to a runner. Make a hundred copies of that, she said. Pass 10 copies each to the primary level of cell leaders. Have them pass it down to their sub-tans. Go! The runner took off down the Institute of Art's wide steps. Steve would have to change location soon. Too long in one spot made him a potential target for bombers, helicopters, or even inoculated commandos that might drop in. Elsewhere in America, other leaders, who didn't seem to have Steve's special brand of foresight, were organizing large groups that destroyed everything they could find. The leaders who used the Internet for these activist calls to action were opening themselves up to the government's sniffer programs and computer analysts. Might as well put up a big neon sign that said, Enemy of the state, drop bombs here. Steve knew too much to let that happen. He still used phones and the Internet, of course but only for messages coded to sound like the natural language of people panicking while the world collapsed around them. By using instant messaging, online forms, social media sites, texts, tweets, blog posts and comments, as well as the sneaker net of human feet, he could communicate with all his people while staying well under the government's radar. Steve walked to a table where he'd set up his information lab. A follower sat at each of his three laptops, calling up websites, blogs, newscasts, anything that would give him the big picture. The U.S. government had written off Manhattan, Minneapolis, too, by the looks of things, and, just a few hours earlier, Chicago. Paris was a memory. The British had barricaded London, no one in, no one out. That strategy hadn't worked in Chicago, and wasn't going to work there, either. No info out of China. None at all. That was fine, because Steve could give a shit about China. He'd been born in America, and that was where he'd be crowned emperor. The U.S. government had yet to pull the plug on the Internet, with several of the major networks down and more soon to follow. CNN showed nothing but color bars. ABC's feed was a constant hiss of static. The government needed the Internet to spread information to the uninfected. Go here to be safe. Stay away from these areas. Here is your testing center. This place has inoculations available. And of course, monitoring the Internet was the government's main way to track down those large groups of converted. Steve didn't mind that at all. Anyone who could organize such a group was an eventual rival for power. If someone removed Steve's rivals for him, all the better. He heard a cell phone buzz. Brownstone answered it, then held it out to him. "'Your Uncle Sven,' she said. Uncle Sven was one of her names for the scouts who were hunting for higher-powered weapons. Pistols and shotguns just weren't enough. Steve took the phone. "'What is it?' "'It's Sven,' said the voice on the other end. A bad attempt to sound panicked, but close enough. "'I found out where Nate Grissom is. He's in town.' The scouts had found an armory. The N.G. of Nate Grissom stood for National Guard. A simple code, but with the country in a tailspin, no government analyst was going to figure it out, if anyone was even listening at all. Awesome sauce, Steve said. Do you think you can take my cousins and go get him? Yeah, I got inside info. Inside info. That meant the scouts' group included someone who had served at that facility. Okay, then go get Nate. Steve hung up. It was the third such call he'd received in the last hour. By morning, General Brownstone would be overseeing the distribution of military weapons. Chapter 7 There's Bad News and Bad News The wind had picked up. The fire had died down. The hotel lobby was colder than ever. Cooper Mitchell lined up the bottom of the fire extinguisher then jammed it down on the door handle. The metal clinked but didn't break. He looked around, seeing if anyone or anything reacted. He remained alone except for the sick people lying around the fire. He waited a few more seconds just to be sure, then lifted the extinguisher again. Clink. The door handle bent. He drove the fire extinguisher down a third time. The handle ripped free and clattered against the floor. He slid his cold fingers into the hole, found the latch mechanism, and pulled it sideways. He pushed the door open. Inside was a tiny office. Various calendars and work regulation posters tacked to the walls. Just one overstuffed desk with a chair tucked under it. On that desk, various family pictures and one black laptop, flipped open and waiting. The screen was dark. Cooper pushed the door shut behind him. The tiny room was much like the space behind the Walgreens counter. He thought of his last few moments with Sophia. But she'll be with you forever now, won't she? Because you ate her, and you're digesting her, and she'll be part of your muscles and part of your bones forever and ever and ever. Cooper shook his head, tried to clear his thoughts. A phone on the desk. He grabbed the handset, heard nothing. The line was dead. He sat down in the desk chair. He was almost afraid to touch the computer. If it didn't turn on, he was out of options. He'd have to risk leaving on foot, all by himself against a city of cannibals. Cooper tapped the space bar. The computer screen remained black for a moment, then flared to life. Oh shit, it's working. It's working. He searched for a web browser icon. He found one, clicked it. The computer made small whirring noises. The Google homepage flared to life. News. He needed news. He called up CNN.com. The website's familiar red banner and white-lettered logo appeared. Below that, pictures of horror, of death, of a country on fire. Glowing headlines showed city names that read like a list of tourist attractions, if you didn't count the words next to them. Words like ablaze, destruction, thousands dead, New York City, London, Minneapolis, Berlin, Philadelphia, Boston, Paris, Miami, Baltimore, and, of course, Chicago. It's everywhere, he said. Everywhere. He clicked for additional news on Chicago. More stories appeared. All roads and highways had been blocked off sometimes by trenches or collapsed overpasses, more often by miles of burned-out cars. Cooper finally understood why the military hadn't come in to save Chicago. Because the military had instead blockaded Chicago. At least that's what the news said. The military wasn't letting anyone in or out. The story said troops were preparing to re-enter the city and take it by force. Until then, all citizens were warned to remain inside to not answer the door for anyone, not even family. Stay off the phones. Don't overwhelm the cellular networks. He nodded rapidly. Yes, yes, they were coming in. He just had to stay alive a little while longer. And then he noticed the story's date. It was from yesterday. He started clicking through links, found that the entire site hadn't been updated in the last 20 hours. Could CNN actually be down? The whole thing? Cooper tried the Yahoo homepage. It came up instantly with a huge red headline. Chicago. Abandoned. No, he said. He read the story, each word a crushing blow to his soul. This can't be fucking happening. The U.S. government had written off Chicago. No troops were coming in. Troops weren't even surrounding the city anymore, too much territory to cover. Those forces had been moved to protect cities that had not yet been overrun. He couldn't be alone here, trapped with madmen and monsters. Cooper kept searching, kept clicking, hitting the trackpad so hard the desk vibrated. After five minutes of panicked reading, a story caught his eye. Government working on biological warfare against Converted. Reuters. Anonymous sources out of Washington DC are reporting that the government is developing a biological weapon that will target the converted who are raging across the country and are responsible for thousands of deaths worldwide. An unnamed source said that the new weapon is actually a modified version of the pathogen responsible for creating the violent converted in the first place. This disease for the disease is lethal to the converted, but reportedly does no harm to people who have not yet been infected. The modified version originates from people who have had a rare form of stem cell therapy, known as HAC-12b. When those patients become infected, the modified stem cells alter the nature of the pathogen, turning it into the biological weapon sorely needed to combat the converted. Anyone who has had this therapy should contact the government via the attached links at the bottom of this story. Cooper couldn't breathe. He stared at the screen until the words blurred, until they moved on their own, jiggling on the screen like wiggly black cartoon worms. Everything connected. His stem cell therapy. No way. No way. This disease began with whatever Steve Stanton pulled up from the bottom of Lake Michigan. Stanton apparently became some sort of grand dragon leader or something. Jeff got sick. Turned into that thing. Cooper got sick, too, but then he got better. He thought back to the hotel that first night with Sophia. Chavo had come in while they slept. Had Chavo already been sick? Or did he get sick because he was in the room with Cooper? When the tall man and his friends first caught Cooper and Sophia at the Walgreens, they'd seemed healthy. Then they'd spent the night in the hotel lobby with Cooper, breathing the same air as Cooper. And now those people were all sick, just like Shavo had been. Cooper felt at the back of his neck, a shred of hanging skin still there, left over from the blister Sophia had pointed out the day before. It had popped like a little puff ball, squirted out a tiny cloud of white. He forgot about the icy temperature, tore off his coat and shirt. He examined his body, found a dozen small puffy spots filled with air and at least another dozen that had already torn open. It's me. I'm the reason. Cooper rushed out of the office and back into the ruined lobby. He looked at the tall man, who was clearly dying. Two of the others were already dead, lifeless eyes staring out at nothing. I'm contagious, Cooper said. I'm the reason they're dead. He looked to the blackened corpse above the dying fire. You hear that, Sophia? I got them for you. I got them good. I'm real sorry I had to eat you. Real sorry. I just have to find a better place to hide. Maybe a room upstairs. Wait for the government to send people to save me, and then... His voice trailed off. Someone would come for him, sure. But what then? Would they lock him up and study him? The government barely gave a shit about civil rights when everything was fine. With the world going straight to hell, they would do anything they wanted with him. Contacting the government, telling them he'd had the hack therapy. That was his only chance to live. But he also had to find a way to make sure regular people knew about him. Knew what he had inside of him. Otherwise, he might vanish at the hands of the good guys just as easily as he could at the hands of the psychotic fuckstains who had taken over Chicago. A laptop. At the top of the screen, there had been a tiny, reddish dot. A camera. Cooper rushed back into the office. You have been listening to Pandemic. Book three of the Infected Trilogy by number one New York Times best-selling novelist Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by
0: Empty Set Entertainment.
1: Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine. erstwhile monk-turned-traveling-medical-investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world.